Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're going to be looking at social conflicts. No, no we're not. not! Yes, we are, damn it. Bloody pantomime, I hate. Okay, get the <laughs> dice out, make a roll. Unfortunately, circumstances have conspired against us again, and we have been unable to meet in person. However, we will try to at least get a little new segment into this episode. The first thing is we're starting work now, or just about to at least, on issue three of the Blasphemous Tome. If this name doesn't mean anything to you, this is the Baccaroni fanzine that we produce for the people who give us money via Patreon. It's an annual thing, um, and we've put the first two issues out around springtime in the year. But what we're aiming to do this time is do it slightly earlier. In particular, we send Christmas cards out to everyone who backs us as well. So our hope this year is to combine the two and get the tome out with your Christmas cards. Of course, you know, this is a plan and things do change. So we're not guaranteeing this at the moment, but that's our aim. One slight change to the tome that we might see this year is that we've been given permission by Chaosium to actually uh, stat things for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, so when we do our traditional scenario in there this year, we're going to do a, a proper Call of Cthulhu scenario. Uh, so, yeah, there's something to look forward to. We'll give you a bit more news as things develop. The other thing I wanted to mention was a little update on our recent visit to the US. We will give you a bit more detail about what, what we got up to in a, a special episode later, but I really wanted to uh, say some thanks and give a, a little bit of information about something that happened. When we'd finished up in Providence, we went down to New York uh, and we did a signing at the Complete Strategist there. And we had a very pleasant surprise uh, in that one of our listeners, Evan Dawkin, came out and visited us at uh, The Strategist. And um, for those of you who don't recognise the name, Evan is a comic artist and writer um, who has produced marvellous work over the years uh, and has recently been working in a very Lovecraftian vein. And... When he came and visited us, he, he brought us some presents, which were um, these uh, collections of, of his latest work. So this is a, a comic that he's been working on with his wife, Sarah Dyer. The two of them are co-writing it, and they're working with an artist by the name of Aaron Hummerston. And the comic is called Call of Cthulhu, or Call of Cthulhu. Um, I, I really should have paid more attention to how to pronounce it, sorry. And... It's it's unusual. Uh, it's it's um, a young adult take on the mythos that perhaps blends in little elements of maybe things like Buffy and Hellboy, but creates something very much its own. And it tells the story of this this young woman, Kala uh, Cthulhu, Kala Cthulhu, um, who is the. The, the teenage daughter in this this long line of mythos-infused um, entities, things that look like people. Uh, certainly there, there's this 
this unusual representation of the mythos in that the a lot of the entities we see in this at least wear the shells of human forms. There's something you know eldritch and nasty and horrible underneath, but you could mistake them for human at first. Yeah, I mean this this comic is great fun. It, it's it is very much kind of aimed at a young adult audience, but at the same time, uh, I mean Evan warned me that it might be a bit cutesy for my taste. One particular aspect of it in particular, and to be honest, I, yeah, I, I I found that quite endearing. It, it's fast moving. Uh, it's it's entertaining. It's funny, um, and it starts off. You know, fairly breezy and action-packed and, and develops its, its background as it goes on. By the time you get to the end of this collection, uh, the collection is published by Dark Horse, by the way, um, it, it there is a surprising amount of depth that, that has been revealed. And they've really set things up very, very nicely for where it's going to continue from there. Um Apparently the comic is coming out on a regular basis through an app, uh, the, the Stellar Comics app, which I, I must admit I've, I've never actually used. Um, but, you know, if, if you like me, uh, you know, stuck in the print age uh, when it comes to comics, then, you know, the, the, this first collection is, yeah, definitely well worth taking a look at if, if, you're, um, if you want to see an interesting and unusual and fun take on the mythos. And after all that, it's now time for the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Anyway, this week's word of the week is forbidden. I love this one. It's got a really short description. It's an adjective. One, not allowed prohibited now obviously this can also be a verb uh, used in the the, uh, the past participle of forbid but Lovecraft mostly used it as an adjective so it usually ties in with some sort of theme like knowledge places or things that are dangerous to, to humanity as a whole so forbidden books of ancient lore and forbidden cities and so on uh, what's the deal with that Who, who's forbidden them yeah, I, this is a really interesting thing. I, Lovecraft uses the word forbidden an awful lot to mean sort of bad or unwise to engage with. And it's this abstract idea of forbidden that something is, you know, a, a book like the Necronomicon is, is often referred to in his text as, as this forbidden tome. But, but who is forbidding it? I just like the idea that there is this esoteric order of book um, censorship <laughs> that's been around since the time of the al if that just goes to these obscure publications and go, no, not allowed. Well, to be fair, I mean, that is sort of what the church did, the Catholic church did for a great many years. And, you know, it did prohibit books and it did burn books. And, and so there is, yeah, with the books, I suppose, very much an element of that. But, I mean, Lovecraft throws the word forbidden around in this abstract way. It very rarely ties in directly to, say, the church or a particular group forbidding it. It, it is just the idea that, that this thing or this place is so beyond human norms that it is just inherently forbidden. And before the Catholic Church, we have the Christian Bible, wherein there's the forbidden fruit and the forbidden knowledge in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, that, that's the same sort of concept, although in that it's, it's God that's forbidden this mm. uh, man to, to have this kind of stuff. 
But I, I suppose it's the way that the concept of forbidden fruit and forbidden knowledge has then drifted into our consciousness and our language, that there are certain things, you know, particularly in this context of things or places that are beyond what humanity should know, uh, that they're things, the knowledge of which are dangerous to us, that you know, this makes them forbidden. I've now got the idea that dentists are apparently a conspiracy against that, thinking an apple a day keeps the dentist away. No, have that one apple up there. It's lovely. <laughs> well, except to be pedantic, I think in the Bible um, it's never actually specified what kind of fruit it is. And biblical scholars, if I remember correctly, have suggested that a better analogue might be actually, actually either a quince or a fig rather than an apple. Could Doesn't be a, Could be a turnip. <laughs> turn it grown from a tree well but, yeah. they say a tree but obviously you know in, in the original translation i think it was mistranslated it was actually a turnip because they're pretty evil yeah well and and it doesn't get much more forbidden than a turnip that's growing from a tree i mean that is yeah, just right really wrong yeah that's, that's like multiple layers of wrong yeah what is it that fruit that we saw in new york that these those like stinks like oh, shit oh, the, there we go that could be fairly forbidden <laughs> <laughs> that is a forbidden fruit yeah. quite literally oh yeah if you travel around hotels in southeast asia you will see prohibition signs up in hotels saying do not bring fruit back to the hotel and that is all down to durian and you're not yeah. allowed to take them on aeroplanes. Yeah, because they stink like an open sewer. Yum. How, how do we get here? <laughs> <laughs> so this word turns up 66 times in Lovecraft's fiction. A quite a popular word for him. Yeah, one of the, the more used adjectives that, um, that, that we've discussed on the Word of the Week... I think it's it's probably one that, even though it's it's you know perhaps a fairly commonly used word, it's one that people would very much associate with Lovecraft because of that idea of forbidden texts. Now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word forbidden in his writings. From Hypnos. I can recall the scene now. The desolate, pitch-black garret studio under the eaves with the rain beating down. The ticking of the lone clock the fancied ticking of our watches as they rested on the dressing table, the creaking of some swaying shutter in a remote part of the house, certain distant city noises muffled by fog and space, and worst of all, the deep, steady, sinister breathing of my friend on the couch, a rhythmical breathing which seemed to measure moments of supernal fear and agony for his spirit as it wandered in spheres forbidden, unimagined and hideously remote. And from the Whisperer in Darkness. Glancing at these pictures as I took them from the envelope, I felt a curious sense of fright and nearness to forbidden things. For, in spite of the vagueness of most of them, they had a damnably suggestive power which was intensified by the fact of their being genuine photographs, actual optical links with what they portrayed, and the product of an impersonal transmitting process without prejudice, fallibility, or mendacity. And from the book. There was a formula, a sort of list of things to say and do, which I recognised as something black and forbidden, something which I had read of before in furtive paragraphs of mixed abhorrence and fascination penned by those strange ancient delvers into the universe's guarded secrets, whose decaying texts I loved to absorb. 
And now moving on to our main topic, social conflicts in RPGs. Well, to begin with, what do we mean by a social conflict? Whatever it is, I'm going to say it's wrong. <laughs> so it's a verbal exchange usually. Not always verbal exchange, I guess, but it's it's not combat, right? But it's a, it's a struggle or a, a, an opportunity to persuade someone or coerce someone or have an influence on someone else, another NPC or another player character. Well, making good yeah. on my promise, I'm going to disagree with that because it could be seen as a type of combat. Oh, okay. Yeah, just not physical combat. I, yeah, it is an attempt to change the course of, of action of another character, a non-player character or player character, through social means, whether that is conversation, whether that is um, non-violent physical uh, interaction, whether it's body language... Yeah, I think it's still a social conflict. I know you know, there are going to be some edge cases there with you know whether you know, physically restraining someone is probably physical combat, but you know perhaps putting a hand on their shoulder to restrain them just for a moment and and ask them to think again before they do something that's probably a social conflict. But so it's a bit of a sliding scale, right? But- yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll, we'll dig into some specific examples as the episode goes on. One thing that we'll probably come back to over and over again here is how difficult it is to pin down exactly what a lot of these things mean. But in everyday terms, you know, in our everyday life, we have social conflicts, we have arguments, we have seduction, we have intimidation, you know, to a greater or lesser degrees, these things, these things go on every day. One thing, though, I think it's really, really important to say at this stage is that social conflicts are something within games. They're things that happen between characters. And you will quite often get conflicts between players at the table where you get two players who've got very, very different ideas about where the game should be going or the type of approach their characters should be taking. One may be very gung-ho and another one very cautious. And you'll end up with, with friction between those people, not their characters. And... Playing out social conflicts at the gaming table is, in my experience, generally a terrible, terrible way of trying to resolve these. Well, that can be a difficult place to draw the line there, though, because if I'm playing my character and they're very gung-ho and very active, I'm role-playing my character, but, you know, you're playing somebody who's, um, you know, very reserved, it's hard to imagine, Scott, but somebody (laughs) who's very reserved and cautious, you know, and you're role-playing that, you know, it's like, is that you or is that your character? So we can end up with... It being difficult to differentiate between Paul and Scott arguing and their player characters arguing. So I think that can be a difficult thing to determine. When it gets away from the table, it brings me back to that uh, good old LARP meme that I've uh, used before of Brazilian rules. Yeah, don't and don't end up killing the player just to kill the character. <laughs> but I, I, the point I was trying to make was that um, it, it depends what the underlying reason for that friction is. If the friction is purely between the characters, if you and I step outside the game and sort of say, "Oh, we're finding this conflict fun," that you know the fact that our two characters have got very different approaches and that you know this, these conflicts keep coming up during the scenes, these are entertaining to us. We want to carry on role playing them. That's fine. If it's the players' personalities and they're rubbing each other up the wrong way, then using mechanics to try to resolve that will end in disaster. 
Yeah, I, I can think of a couple of instances where I know that certain players have pushed it to say, if we have a disagreement out of game, resolve it in game. And it's normally, frankly, the worst dick mm. at the table who's saying that. Yeah. Well, this is a huge generalisation, but it's maybe because they realise they don't have the social skills or the authority or, or the standing at the table or the respect of the people around them enough to actually get their way or you know, convince people in a normal, healthy way. So they're using the game as their proxy to do that. Especially if said game has the mechanics that allow you to enforce that with dice. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, when we're talking about social conflicts, we're not talking about that aspect of things. Yeah, that, that's toxic. So in the game, we have a variety of types of social conflict, and different games break these down into different definitions. So we might just have, you know, something like persuasion as a, as a catch-all, because persuasion is a kind of a, a catch-all. It, it does kind of, you know, I'm going to persuade someone to like me, you know, instead of charm or persuade someone to do something instead of intimidation. But other games break it down into more, uh, into more detailed subsections. Yes, and also, I mean, even if, if a game has one catch-all or some fairly broad categories for social skills, you'll see certain common types of, of social conflicts come out of these that are independent, perhaps, of the skills or the attributes being used. I think the the broadest categories that I've seen. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, intimidation is a big one. Um, you know, you, you're trying to browbeat someone into getting your way. That's your default social skill, isn't it? At the table, it is. Yes. <laughs> There's a more general persuasion where you're trying to engage someone intellectually. There's perhaps charm where you're trying to engage them more emotionally and win them over by portraying uh, yourself as as their friend. There's misdirection. I mean, just plain bullshitting someone. Um, the good old fast talk skill. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, this this is an interesting one, and we'll we'll drill down into specific game mechanics a bit more later. Fast talk in Call of Cthulhu originally had a very very specific uh, idea: the fact that it was you know talking fast, trying to confuse someone, just baffle them with bullshit. And I think it sort of evolved into a more general sort of misdirection and lying skill. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And the rules for social interaction also step out into things like psychology to sense motivation, mm. to try and read if somebody's lying to you or to tell what they actually want, what their actual agenda is. You know, it's questionable whether that should be a skill because can you do that in real life? Well, to some degree you can. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's always an interesting one to me because... It depends so much on the game being played, the genre expectations, the personalities of the people around the table, and what they're, they're expecting to get out of it. I and mean, with certain games, you know, the question of, is he lying? That's something that you want a very concrete yes or no answer to, because what the game is about is the moral implications of the decisions you make based on that information. Whereas with, you know, say, you know, something that's an investigation or a mystery, just getting a stark answer to, you know, is he lying, can sometimes be almost deflating. Especially if you ask the right question at the right time, it can kill a mystery dead. Mm. It's like you ask everyone in the room, did you kill this person? And then make a psychology roll against them or use whatever lie detecting skill the game specifies whether it's like spend a point of assess honesty or bullshit detector or whatever and then suddenly go no 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 yes oh there's the scenario done there we are. it would have shortened a lot of agatha christie novels oh hell <laughs> yeah you could just like are they lying 
Yes, no. Just like, <laughs> right, okay. It's, it's when you then play the version of Murder on the Orient Express that you go, hang on a minute, I got 12, 12 yeses. This doesn't yeah. make no sense. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this is a, an example of something, I mean, you see fairly often in role-playing games where the game mechanics sort of make the role-playing game become their own genre to some extent, that you get these things happening in a game because the mechanics support them, that um, you would never see in real life, in a film, in a book or anything like that, that characters will behave in a certain way because it is the optimal way of engaging with the game mechanics and getting what the player you know, wants out of it. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, perhaps for another episode, mm. is how game mechanics shape the story and the genre in a way that a lot of people sort of will say oh it doesn't really matter what mechanics we use it's always you know we just play the game but yeah it kind of does because those very mechanics shape a lot of what you can do in play and i think there are other edge cases as well with the social conflicts one that that i think sort of almost comes under the bullshitting or fast talk aspect of it is impersonating another character this is something we see perhaps in Call of Cthulhu with the acting skill, and we'll see you know, in all sorts of other games, that whole master of disguise thing, or just being able to put on someone's voice and do a, you know, mimic that fairly well. That is a, you know, a very, very specific form of social conflict, but a, you know, an unusual one. Yeah, it's a form of deception. I mean, acting is a form of deception, one might say. And also mind control spells and psychic abilities, the use of the domination spell, I mean, very, very <laughs> simply to be able to tell someone what to do, albeit for a short time, but some spells allow that um, to go on for longer. But yeah, I think uh, the mind control spells in particular, or mind control psychic abilities, are a, such a, a powerful version of this that there's something that you probably want to approach very, very infrequently and lightly when they come up. I guess included in that, you could almost include some the use of some drugs mm, um, yes. to affect people's mental state all their characters and be able to get information out of them or to urge them to do something or perhaps hypnosis um, mm. suggestion what is it nlp yes um, and, and things like that that would have an influence on people to do things against basically it's anything i think that changes the way someone acts not quite of their own volition or changing their motivation and so on and I think it's a really important demarcation to put in there as well, because I have seen players at the table, you know, on a number of occasions, try to treat, you know, the persuade skill or, or something like that as a form of mind control. It's sort of, you know, I want to make his character do such and such, I'll roll persuade. And, ooh, hang on, that, that's, that's not quite what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's a bit more presumptive as well, that the player thinks that's how the mechanic's going to work in that game that they're playing in. Because mm. it's very much down to the keeper to set those parameters. And now we have a look at how game mechanics can support social conflicts in RPGs. Well, what do we expect social mechanics in a game to actually do? I guess one starting point would be to think, well, what if we have an absence of any mechanics for social conflicts? Mm. So in... Old school D&D, as far as I recall, there's no social mechanics in there. So if we go into a room and there's some NPCs or, you know, a monster of some sort and we get into a dialogue with them, is there any way we can intimidate them or charm them or, you know, without use of magic, charm person, I'm not talking about that, um, or persuade them to do something? So it just comes down to me talking to the DM? 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I, the first time I tried running Lamentations of the Flame Princess, I did actually try doing that as an experiment. Because there was no social conflict mechanics in there, I decided to try to resolve any social conflicts that came up purely through role-playing. In later games that I ran, you know, where it became important to get a result, uh, you know, a definitive conclusion to a conflict, I started using charisma roles to do that. But um, this time I thought, no, no, let's, let's just role-play everything. And one thing that I found was that it made outcomes feel very woolly. I, I remember there was a scene where I think it was our friend Robin who was playing and Robin's character was trying to persuade a merchant in a city, trying to confuse them and think that there was some conspiracy against them or they were in some kind of danger that they weren't in so that he could um, you know, maybe get them out of the shop and, and loot it or something like that. Yeah, we, we role-played this, and you know, it, it, Robin did a really good job of, of being persuasive, and so I started role-playing and going along with it. And then, I, I, I can't remember what it was, he said something that then you know, undercut his argument, and I then had the character react badly against that, and, and then you know, he, he tried to correct it and, and bring it back round, and, uh, I, and it just kept going backwards and forwards like this, that he couldn't to my satisfaction, make a persuasive argument. And the whole scene just stalled as a result as it was just going backwards and forwards here. So his objective was to persuade an NPC of something, yeah. but his in-person dialogue, what he was actually saying as the player, wasn't really convincing you yeah. as, as, the, as, the, as the DM or, or, or the NPC that, that they would be persuaded. Yeah. But I guess the question is, was he playing a character you know if he was playing uh, a ship's captain or or, or a, um, a night watchman or something one would expect them to be fairly authoritative figures who could persuade people of such things yeah the character if i remember correctly wasn't particularly you know this was you know very much a fast talk attempt yeah but my point being that if the character should kind of have that skill surely they should be perhaps be better at it than the player is Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, th this is why I found it such an interesting thing, and I deliberately did it as an experiment to see how well the kind of game that I've become used to functions without social mechanics. Mm -hmm. And the answer, you know, for me at least, was badly. And this does bring me back round to a topic, I'm not sure if we've mentioned it in previous episodes, but I know we've talked about it previously, because I think it was actually Neil from the MKRPG Club who raised it, um, particularly in relation to the Amber role-playing game. Hmm. where he said, I'm going to build a character that is completely and utterly the best in the universe at solving riddles and puzzles. And then whenever a riddle or puzzle comes up in play, I just say, I solve it. Because at that point, you're using the player skill rather than the character's skill. Yeah, yeah so as a, as, a, as a player, I create a character who is, is massive and really scary and really frightening and has got a really high intimidation skill. But maybe I'm a really meek mild-mannered person who is never intimidating. Does that mean my character is never intimidating? Yeah, I, it's it's an interesting argument. I mean, it's if we treat social conflicts as a form of combat, which is, you know, I think something we'll come back to later in the episode, but we don't expect, if there's a combat at the table, for the player to get up and punch the GM in the face to resolve it. Oh, there's some instances where I really want to do that. <laughs> yes, but that's you, Matt. Um... <laughs> But with social conflicts, I mean, is it really fair then 
to expect a player to be able to play through every aspect of that that conflict if the player is not outgoing or eloquent enough to actually pull it off. I think the burden here lies actually on the GM because as the player, I decide what I want my player to do. Nobody's going to argue with that particularly. Well, they may, but, you know, it's, it's, it's up to me what my player does, right? That's the whole point. You, you, mean, got your, one... you mean your character? What? Yeah, my character even. <laughs> I like the fact well, you, have, you have a player. Well, it's kind of what I do as well, right? <laughs> um, well, we let you think that, Paul. Yeah. It's almost the, the, the little puppet's uh, strings that are making him <laughs> dance at the table. <laughs> but for the GM, they're in charge of a whole raft of NPCs who are NPCs. They're, they're, they might be major NPCs, they might be minor NPCs, but the GM decides everything the NPCs do in quite sometimes quite arbitrary ways and is having to make micro decisions about how the NPC acts and they're not necessarily invested in the NPC they have but they have to decide how they react to something the player character has done Mm. and if I have to decide oh is Scott being very persuasive here I'm not really sure if he's persuading me or not it's really coming down to me Paul deciding is Scott being persuasive enough how do I decide that? And then, you know, Matt, maybe I like Matt more and I'm a bit more forgiving to him. Ooh. And then Scott feels, well, that wasn't very fair because I, I made a really good argument. Mm. And then then we do get an argument, right? Yeah. So the, the whole point of the mechanics for me is, is to some degree to take that decision out of my hands. I would ask you to put forward what you say and I would encourage you to speak in character in addition to a dice roll to see how effective yes. that is. Yeah, I, as a player, you know, I really enjoy role-playing. It's why I play role-playing games. And that involves a lot of speaking in, in character. And this applies just as much when I'm GMing. I, you know, I love jumping around between all those different characters. I love trying to make persuasive arguments. If there's intimidation going on, I like to try to use body language and turn the voice to be intimidating. You know, I really get into all that. But I appreciate at the same time that not everyone does. So it always puts me in two minds about this. I appreciate it's not fair to expect everyone to do that. I expect you know, that, that it's not fair to expect someone who is shy and retiring by nature to suddenly be the world's most eloquent con artist or to be a, a big intimidating bruiser if, if that's not their nature and if, if they don't feel comfortable role-playing that. At the same time, you know, if they want to at least make a passing attempt at that, that that will make me feel happier. I, I'm not expecting them to be intimidating or be thoroughly, you know, uh, convincing as as a fast talk artist. But I do want some back and forth there. Yeah, and your audience here is three, four, five other people around the table that pretty much like yourself. There's no need to be in, inhibited. Just you know, just throw yourself into it and and try and put forward some sort of in person role playing. Yeah, I think that, that adds a lot to it. Would you give a bonus to somebody if they put forward a really strong argument? Because I've seen Mm. this done as well. I suppose I I would sometimes. And again, it's not very fair. But 
Yeah, I, I play a lot of games. You know, for example, I'm, I'm running Pandemonio at the moment at the club. And one of the rules in there is that if you give a particularly vivid description to an attack or a, to a violent move, then you get one, maybe two bonus dice on that. And so that does favour people who can picture the scene vividly and, and put a creative description in there. But at the same time, it makes the game a lot more fun for everyone. And I'd expect that to apply just as much to social conflicts as well. Uh, Yes, I mean, I think it helps encourage that kind of play that I really want to see. I think it helps draw it out. But no, at the same time, it's not fair to everyone because not everyone has the same facility for doing that. The only time I'd say I'd give a bonus in a... It's usually Persuade. That's the the angle I approach conflicts at. That's the main skill I, I sit with. Um, is if the player has deliberately said something, or maybe even not deliberately, but if they've said something in their argument, if they push a particular NPC's button with something they've said, then I'll give them a bonus die. Or likewise, if they've said completely the wrong thing, then I'll give um, give them a penalty die. But it seems to me this is all fairly arbitrary down to how the the GM or keeper sees it. And also, we're never starting from a level playing field. So... When we come to persuade an NPC, let's say I walk into the bar and there's an NPC sat at the table reading the newspaper. They put it down and start drinking their coffee. I walk over and say, Can I, do you mind if I just borrow a newspaper for a minute? Would I ask for a role for that? No, I don't think so. I'll just say, okay, yeah, probably just move the story on. You know, you get to read the newspaper. Maybe there's some interesting tips in there. But then there are other times when, you know, I want to, that, that NPC's out in the street and he's just getting in his car and I see that the baddies head off and I'm like, please, please, let me get in your car and, and come with you, follow that guy. You know, now I'm going to need a role, right? Mm. Unless so, he's a taxi driver. <laughs> yeah. Or I run up, I've got, an, I'm covered in blood, I've got a knife in my hand, the guy's just opening his car door and I yell and scream at him, get the fuck out of the way and try and take his car off him. I'd be more inclined to just say that with that description, the guy's shit terrified. He just runs off. He just, Probably with his keys, but he okay, still well, runs off. It's, it's one of the cultists. Yeah. Who knows me? Could I scare him into, like, backing off? I'm trying to intimidate him. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So what I'm, what the point I'm making is it's each time you do this, it's a very different level of challenge that, yes. that we can be talking about. So it can be something that basically as, as Keeper... Every verbal interaction could be a social conflict, but often they're just very, very plain and they're just dialogue. But then at some point we have to think, when, when is a role required? Yeah, and it's not just social conflicts that that applies to. I mean, this is possibly a broader discussion for another time about when you specifically call for roles and things. The general thing that I try to abide to myself is that I will call for roles when I think the consequence of failure is interesting. So let's let's go back to the example you had there. You're running up to the car, you're covered in blood, you've got a knife. There is the cult leader in the car ahead who's just kind of pulled away and is going to get away. Now, is it interesting at this stage if that cult leader gets away? Is it going to potentially take things in a different direction? Will the players have to be creative and try to find some other way of, of working out where he got to? Or... 
is everything just going to grind to a complete halt if he gets away? Uh, if it's the latter, then I might be inclined just to not ask for a role and say, right, oh, yeah, the, the, the guy you know, drops his keys in terror, runs off, you, you pick them up and you can drive after the cult leader without calling for a role. If the consequence of that failure is interesting, then, yeah, by all means, go to the dice. I think also there should be different levels of difficulty. I mean, as we have in Call of Cthulhu, right? So if it's going back to the example of the person with the car, if it's just an innocent bystander and you do, you know, you do decide you're going to call for a role, probably not so difficult, right? If you are clearly threatening, you've got a knife and, and stuff and you're trying to intimidate them, most people probably would back off. Whereas if it is like a hardened gang member, it's going to be harder to intimidate, right? Mm. And if it's like the cult leader, you know, the the big bad, one might almost say there's no chance they're going to be intimidated, but who knows? So th there are different levels of, how else can I put it, but difficulty, I think. We've talked a lot in the abstract here about how game mechanics affect uh, these conflicts. But have we got any specific examples from games of uh, social conflict mechanics that we particularly like or dislike or find interesting for some uh, in some way? I can think of one that's interesting, but I've not actually used it myself. It's one that I've seen but never actually had a chance to implement, which comes from Vampire the Requiem, um, specifically from their Requiem for Rome source book that there are debate mechanics. Because hmm. uh, it's supposed to replicate arguments within the Senate, a ruling class of the um, of vampire society, where they take it upon themselves as a bit like a sport, that you can perform social arguments rather than resorting to a good D&D &D trope of getting swords out and whack each other. It's going through step-by-step, step, going through the argument, which side can you... Um, how many people can you sway in the debate and things like that, where it gives you a concrete resolution as to who wins the debate and who loses the debate at the end of it. So this sounds a bit like the dogs in the vineyard thing, back and forth from one to the other until you finally get a resolution at the end? Yeah, sort of, from, from so you set a, it, yeah. You kind of set a stake or a, an outcome that's going to be decided, Yeah, and then the mechanics by through back and forth ultimately get to a decision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sim similar to dogs in that respect. Yeah, I think Docks in the Vineyard is a re very interesting example in that respect because it plays out uh, social conflicts in exactly the same way mechanically as physical conflicts. The difference is that physical conflicts will inflict more damage. Uh, you know, your character can die as a result. And you have the opportunity at any point during a social conflict to escalate to it being physical, still with the same stake. And, and it's always that question hanging over any social conflict. Is this worth hurting someone for? Is this worth killing someone over? I think that's a really strong point because there is always that threat of violence, but it, it requires you to step up to it. So it's that thing of you know meeting somebody in a pub or in the street and getting into an argument with them and there is that thing of, well, you know, they could hit me now or they could, you know, push me down or whatever. But actually, that's quite a big step mm. in our society for someone to, to actually use physical violence. And I think in most circles we move in, that's pretty unlikely. If it's dogs in the vineyard, though, if you're talking with a steward, just instantly get the extra dice by saying, I pull out my gun, because at worst you're going to shoot him and find um, and kill the guy who's responsible for all the bad shit in town anyway. Or you succeed and he tells you what you need to know. Then you shoot him because you realise he's the guy that's doing all the bad shit in the town. 
And we're uh, back to punching every NPC in the face, Matt. <laughs> I think Scott taught us and, until taught the this clues method, drop yeah. out. Yeah, it's like a clue pinata, <laughs> clue dispenser. Bam! Ah! <laughs> this escalation to violence, I think, is a really interesting aspect of it, though, because I, it, it, this is something we we delved into a fair bit in our uh, episode on making conflict or make, sorry, making combat more interesting, which is the, this idea of um, how. RPG mechanics and the fact that you are playing this abstracted character, you're not feeling the consequences of what you're doing, make it very easy to use violence as a resolution to situations where in real life you'd never dream of it. I think that that, that is something that's always potentially hanging over social conflicts in, in RPGs. The fact that, you know, if I don't get my way, if the dice don't go right here or whatever, well, I'll just pull out my gun and shoot him. And we see it in pushed roles in Call of Cthulhu. So for any of the social interaction roles, whether it be um, fast talk or persuade, perhaps you're trying to use that on a police officer. Uh, if you fail and you've pushed it, well, maybe they're going to arrest you. You know, you, you got so up in their face and, and you've been such a nuisance. With a intimidate, yeah, maybe the NPC does escalate to violence or maybe even you accidentally overstep the mark. You know, you're threatening them with a knife. You, you know, you're really getting up in their face. You push your intimidate role. Maybe you stabbed them and you didn't actually mean to. Maybe they put their hand out and you stabbed it. Not really of your own volition, but as a consequence of the failed pushed role or charm. Yeah, I can see you getting a slap mm. or worse. Kicking the nuts. Yeah. Or miscommunication, person starts screaming or running away, or yeah. But but even in games where you don't have this escalation mechanic, like you know the push mechanic in Call of Cthulhu or the escalation in Dogs in the Vineyard, there is always still that option of stepping up to violence. I don't know, is is that a good thing or not? I mean, the fact that it leads to you know very unrealistic outcomes in that you know people are far more willing to hurt other people to get their way well i think they are because we try and persuade them okay well uh, what do you say blah 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 i'll try to persuade him to do this thing no they're still not doing it uh it, well and roll the dice oh yeah you know you failed okay what next uh well we could carry on trying to persuade well you rolled already what are you going to do uh okay we'll get our swords out and stab him i don't know it's like that's the next <laughs> that's the next step because if yeah. you don't if if the mechanics say you've already tried to use your your social conflict and failed you know in real life you would persist right you'd you'd carry on you'd you'd up the ante well, you'd you'd do something more i think would you or, or, or would you you know kind of back off or and, maybe you back and, off and, right yeah yeah you know, try to find a different avenue try to find someone else to persuade or you know um let, let's let's go with the example you know that we talked about earlier of you know trying to get into a merchant shop to do something nefarious you're trying to convince him that you know maybe there's an evacuation order or something and he needs to get out you do that he knows you're lying i mean do you stand there and stab him or or do you think, oh, right, yeah, sorry, sorry, misunderstanding, back off and then, you know, try to, say, break in through the back of the shop or, you know, wait until that night and, and burgle the place? All those are options, but I think they don't necessarily allow for escalating the social conflict, that taking that risk of pushing the person's buttons for some reason. If, if the outcome of the initial social conflict has just been a, a dead heat and nobody's really got anywhere nobody's it hasn't really been pushed to an extreme then 
I feel like one of the options should be to push it further. But yeah. if the mechanics don't support that, then how do I do it? This is why I like push rolls in um, in Cthulhu, that you have that, oh, I failed my persuade check to get in. I'll try again, but using that example that Scott's had of, oh, there's doing the evacuation order, you've got to get out of town, blah, blah, blah. I'll have the NPC just walk away, and if the PC's persisting on trying to convince them through the door, the next thing they know is that a police siren is coming down the road and that they're being hauled off to the, uh, the local station for, are you trying to impersonate an official or are you harassing mm. this individual? Mm. I, and, of course, you've always got the option in a situation like that is the GM to even if they fail that second role or fail the escalation to actually give them what they they wanted but to impose a price for it so let's let's say in that case yes they did manage to you know convince the shopkeepers to leave the shop you know when you failed your push roll you go inside you know you 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 get whatever you want out of the safe you come out and you find you know a couple of police officers waiting for you <laughs> in games as with Call of Cthulhu where you've got more than one social interaction skill what I find sometimes players say is that they specify which skill they're using mm. without actually saying what they're doing. And then you ask them what they're doing and it kind of conflicts with what they've chosen. So, you know, I'm, uh, oh, uh, I've got, I've got a good charm skill. I'll try and charm the person. Okay. So what are you doing? Well, I'm going to talk to the, talk to them about the, uh, the history of Egypt and particular hieroglyphs and, uh, you know, how they were used in the, uh, so-and-so document. And it's like, Hold on. You said you were trying to charm the person. This sounds like it's going to bore the socks off You, you don't find hieroglyphics an aphrodisiac? No? <laughs> well, maybe you're stroking their knee while doing all that. Okay, now I'm getting creeped out. <laughs> um, have you seen the inscriptions on Cleopatra's Needle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, is that got a pet name for it. <laughs> is that Cleopatra's Needle, or are you just pleased to see me? Why, yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> So what, you know, it's this, it's this thing of, I think, as, as a keeper and something I would encourage you to do is to, to get the player to say what their character is doing and what approach they're taking and preferably mm. to speak in character and sort of you know, actually portray it. And then as, as the GM say, okay, so it sounds like you're being intimidating, we want an intimidation role, or you're being charming or, you know, whatever skill it is, but based on their actions not on the skill they say they're going to use yeah and it's 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 interesting sometimes i i've I had the experience at a few conventions of, of giving out pre-gens to people, particularly with call of cthulhu where characters have got particular social skills and you'll get perhaps a mismatch where a player has got a character whose social skills don't tie in with what their natural inclinations as players are they may find themselves trying to intimidate npcs fairly regularly but yeah they've picked up the character who's got a high fast talk and charm this just isn't working for them and so you know they, they perhaps end up sort of shifting gears and trying to do things in a different way and it's, it's not really working for them if you've got certain ideas about how you want to play that character in social situations, it's always important to make sure that you've designed the character in such a way that they have the skills to support that. Yeah, and I think sometimes when I pick... We're getting into pre-gens here, though, but maybe with pre-gens it'd be nice to sort of give them to people and sort of say, OK, you can pick which social skill you're good in, mm. whichever one you think your character would be best at, whether it's charm or intimidate or... Um, persuade you know you decide because you've read your character now how do you want to play it because sometimes i pick up a player character exactly like you just said scott and i think oh yeah they're like 
you know, I'm going to play them as trying to play them as as charming and friendly and inoffensive. And then I look down and I, oh damn, I've got like seventy percent intimidation. Oh, um, I can't really mesh that. Two skills that I find there can be a bit of confusion over as well at the table are fast talk and persuade. Mm. Um, the the way I handle persuade is if you're making a logical, rational, truthful argument, and fast talk is bullshitting. Yes. So the minute they say they can lay down a very convincing argument that is completely based in bullshit, but if they then say, right, I'll use my persuade skill, it's na 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 na. That's that's fast talk. You are trying to deceive them rather than put across a rational argument based and grounded in fact. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think persuade generally requires some time. You know, it might be just a couple of minutes, but it takes some time. Whereas fast talk can be, that's my cab. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. It's just like a, a quick flashing an ID to say you're a police officer. It's not really a police badge, but you just flash it quickly. That's, that'd be a fast talk, I would say. It's a Halloween costume prop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's trying to overwhelm or confuse your target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked a little bit about um, the idea of uh, escalating and, and pushing uh, a social conflict. But I mean, there are some games, Fate Springs to Bind, uh, and Dogs in the Vineyard as well, where you have these long social conflicts that are played out like combats. Uh, uh, you, and that's like, just one role. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, they, like that uh, vampire example mm-hmm. you mentioned as well, and um, Dying Earth, uh, the, 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 that, you know, it's kind of eschewed uh, physical violence uh, in place of uh, social conflicts, and you had lots of different skills for social conflicts in different approaches. And how to bring in lots of very fancy and prose. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's this idea that you had these extended combat like social conflicts, which is all about the back and forth. Is this something that either of you have used much in your games? No. Being, being honestly, no. <laughs> Not a lot, no. No. Okay. I would tend to condense it down a bit, I think. I think it really comes down to how the players respond to it. Like one example that we've mentioned before, um, where you sat in and watched uh, me run Cadenza at the um, at the last Concrete Cowl, the one before that, where the players pretty much spent an hour and a half arguing amongst themselves of, over what to do. That was one of the most intense social conflicts I've seen at a game table. And there wasn't a dice brought out for that, I... apart, apart from maybe when they tried to affect the NPC right at the very end. At the same time, you can have the dice actually not only support that, but add to that tension. I remember many years ago, I ran a game of Dogs in the Vineyard at uh, the Continuum Convention. And I I only had two players for it because it was before the convention officially started. Their two characters took directly opposite opinions over the fate of this. Basically, there was this, this... a uh, young woman uh, who had found herself in an impossible situation and had committed suicide. And they got into this theological discussion about whether or not this meant she was damned, because the situation that had got her into that was, you know, so horrible that, you know, I think it was James's character sort of said, you know, she had no way out of it apart from this, so, you know, therefore she she can be forgiven. Richard's character sort of said, no, you know, suicide is a sin, no exceptions, hardline. And the two of them got into this theological debate uh, over it, which they then went to the dice over, had this back and forth supported by the bidding mechanic in dogs. And 
you know, it sort of got to the stage where it was sort of, yeah, uh, we're not going to get quite a resolution out of this. You know, are we going to escalate it? Is this worth actually fighting each other for? And it's sort of, yes, okay, we're, we're escalating to that. And it's sort of, yeah, uh, ooh, yeah, this is still someone's soul on the line. I mean, is this actually worth killing over? Yes, all right, the guns are coming out. This conflict between them over this went on for something like 20 minutes in the game. And it was one of the most intense bits of role-playing I have ever seen. I mean, I think the, the hazard in that kind of system is choosing the wrong argument yes. or choosing an argument you're not really invested in. And this is something you're very good at spotting, Scott, is when an argument is worth going to the dice for. Because I've, I've played Dogs in the Vineyard in, with other people and I've run it myself. And if you set up a stake that nobody's really actually that bothered about... Mm. And then you play through a set of quite protracted mechanics and everybody's getting bored. Yeah. Um, so you have to be really careful. And obviously, you are, you, like I said, you're, you're good at spotting this and drilling down into what are people actually interested in and what are they bothered about. Um, because if you don't do that, it, yeah, it, it's, it's a real dead loss. Well, building on what you've just said, Paul, obviously stakes are a big part in this. When you have a social conflict you really want to know what you're arguing over or what you're trying to achieve out of it. When you're setting a stake, how much control should the person setting the stake have? We talked before about how social conflicts are not mind control. So, you know, let, let's, let's say, you know, if uh, I have a conflict with an NPC and sort of say, what I'm trying to do is convince them to you know, re renounce their religion, change their entire way of life, um, and... You and know, follow me and do what I say forever. Exactly. Yeah. And is, is that too much of a stake? I think it is. <laughs> yeah. just, just a little bit. So, so how do you know where to draw the line? Well, you, I think it's a, a, a matter of consensus. So you, as the player, say, uh, well, I want to persuade this guy to do such and such. And me as GM can say, whoa, hold on, before you roll the dice, it, it's agreeing a, a stake or a goal that, that might be an outcome here. But, but how, how do you know uh, what level to agree? I think you have to think beyond the dice. So if Scott succeeds, is what he said acceptable? And if he fails, is the outcome acceptable? It doesn't have to be on the table for everybody to know what the, the outcome of failure is necessarily. The, the GM might have it up their sleeve, but it has to be something that is um, agreeable, I think. Yeah, I think there's, especially if it is affecting another PC, then you have to have their buy into it. But I can find that is a bit of a double-edged sword as well, that if you have a player that is very heavily reliant on doing, like, use, going back to persuade, using persuade skill to convince other players to do something that they are telling them to do, you could have some players that go, oh, yeah, I'm happy to let that decide uh, be decided by a dice roll whether I go this way or the other. And you can have some players that go, oh, no, 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 I'm not having someone dictate what I do. I want to play mm. my character my own way. And if you've got some at the table from one school and some at the table from the other school, it leaves the player who's making that role a little bit almost lost at sea. It's thinking, well, my skill only works like 50% of the time in that case, that so I'm going to get some people to do what I want them to do and others not. Well, I guess part of it depends on whether you're talking about player characters trying to influence NPCs or trying to influence other uh, other PCs. 
I specifically spoke about NPCs in that that um, uh, that example mm-hmm. because I think that's a you know a far more clear cut thing. Oh, definitely. NPCs, I think you should be able to influence with dice rolls. But should you be able to dictate exactly what their response is going to be? Um, so let, let's say yeah, I'm I'm trying to intimidate uh, you know, a, a character. Let's say that yeah, I, I, there, there's a reporter who's investigating. Uh, uh, my uh, investigator's activities. I go up, I intimidate her, and you know, just sort of say, right, okay, drop this investigation, back off, you know, kill this story, I, you know, I don't want you looking into any more of my affairs. And I make my intimidate role. Should I be able to you know, dictate that she will have nothing else to do with ever investigating the story, go off and do something else? Or should I just be able to dictate that she perhaps stop looking into the particular thing she's looking into at that moment? I'd say it's down to the GM, really. I'd say it's very story dependent. Yeah. That if it's a just a, a bit part NPC, and you know you tell them to kind of get on their horse and leave town and never come back, then yeah, I can see that happening. Hmm. But I think generally it's fairly short-term consequences we're talking about with social conflicts, I would say. Fairly immediate things because that seems to be, to me, to be the way it is in life. People go away and they rethink things or somebody else persuades them otherwise uh, or the circumstances change. So, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't generally hold it as something forever. I quite, I quite like the idea of uh, rubbing, an, uh, rubbing a piece, an NPC up the wrong way and really antagonising them. Because if, if they're like me, they'll take that grudge, they'll cultivate it, they'll nurture mm. it, they'll make it grow and it will fester inside them until it becomes something mean and horrible and finally slap them back in the face about a year later in play. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to what you were saying earlier, Matt, then, it becomes a whole different thing if you're talking about influencing other PCs. Oh, God, yeah, Definitely. Do you think um, it's ever a good idea uh, for PCs to use social skills on each other? I'd say only with buy-in, but it's either all or nothing. Either everyone agrees to it or no one agrees to it. Don't split the party in that sense. You have some players who like it and some players that don't. You all sing from the same hymn sheet. I mean, personally, I'm of the opinion, no, because I don't like said skills being used on me, forcing me to act the way I don't want my character to go. Because it makes me feel like, well, why am I even here if someone else is controlling the character for me? I would say, again, it's kind of immediacy. If I encounter your character in their office map and, you know, I'm another player character and you've locked something in the safe and I want the combination, if I threaten you with violence and and you're okay with it, if we make an intimidation roll, I can see you blurting out the combination numbers, right? Or calling for security, one of the But then afterwards I can see you regretting it because that's how we do things in life. Somebody sort of pressures us and we crack and we we say something and then afterwards like, damn, I shouldn't have told them that thing, but they they made me do it. It's kind of that Hagrid moment of, oh, shouldn't have said that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, So, you know, I'm good with that. But if it's that I persuade you that we're going to sail to France and we're going to, you know, go and take on this cult and you're like, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. Okay, well, I make a persuade roll. When are we leaving? Yeah, I mean, I don't really buy that because 
Unless yeah. you, unless you're you say yeah I'm, I'm okay with that if you want to try and persuade I'm, me. I'm already looking up timetables for the boats from Calais. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's an important thing that the you know when it's between player characters, there's always a degree of negotiation that should go on between the players. The sort of you know how, to what degree are you happy to let uh, you, another person affect your character? If you say to the other player, yes, all right, I am happy for you to roll that persuade roll and convince me to go to Calais. Then there's you know there's no reason not to do that. If the other player sort of says, "Oh yeah, no, I don't like the sound of that. This is not something my character would do. It's not something as as a player I want to happen." Then sort of saying, "Oh well, but the rules say, and yeah, you know, I've, I've I've made the rules, so therefore you have to do it." That is just going to lead to a very unhappy gamer. Mm-hmm. And what we have in Call of Cthulhu is just that if you do have a successful social skill roll against a player character best they can get is a bonus die on a future roll they get a bit of an edge on them but it's not so you you retain your volition of, of how your player character acts i think apocalypse world would call it uh game plus one yeah 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 ongoing and to wrap up what are our thoughts about social conflict I think the big question that's come out of this, which we've danced around a bit but haven't necessarily pinned down, is do we believe that social conflicts are a matter for role-playing or mechanics? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think it's a bit of both. One can go to the extreme of saying, no, you don't need any mechanics, you just do it in person. You just You just say what your character would say and that's it. Or you can go to the other extreme of saying... Okay, well, I'm going to roll my persuade skill and just do it on the numbers. But I think a combination of the two is the best spot for me. You say it's a combination. How do you decide what the balance is, though? How do you decide when something is a matter for uh, mechanics? How do you decide? Yeah. How do you how decide do, when how, to how roll de- the dice? Yeah, and and how do you decide how much of a com- how much of an impact those dice are going to have? I think as keeper. It's when I feel I'm making a fairly arbitrary decision about something that's quite important in the game, which I would like to see some random chance in. I think for me it's a matter of when, as we said before, when things are interesting. If there's an interesting result, whether you fail or whether you succeed, that's the point when you break out the dice. Otherwise, um, it's that whether it's versus an NPC or versus a PC split. If it's versus a PC, I would personally err on the side of play it out of the table without resulting to mechanics that could, as we said, force players down a direction they don't particularly feel comfortable with or it takes away their agency. But if it's against an NPC, hey, NPCs don't have feelings. Treat them like a stolen car. Run them over. <laughs> it's fine. And for me, I don't think there's there's any there's any hard and fast set of rules this is something that is going to depend on the game mechanics you're using it's going to depend on the genre you're playing and most of all it's going to depend on the personalities of the people around the gaming table it's much easier if you're playing with people you know and you know their likes and dislikes you know if i know for example matt you know will never want to you know, uh, get into a social conflict with a, another player character and have his, his uh, outcomes limited as a result of that. But Paul, on the other hand, is quite happy to you know, have his character blown around like a leaf on the wind. Then, That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a leaf on the wind. Did you get impaled out, you are you getting impaled out of the blue? So. <laughs> um, then, yeah... You, you you learn how these things work and you learn how to adapt at the table and, and when to use the mechanics, which mechanics to use and how often to use them. 
Well, that ends this social conflict. So, no, it doesn't. Are you sure? Damn it. It's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.